We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And away we go. Episode two of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, February 22nd, 2021. It is the first day of the rest of your podcast listening life. Our new era, our new journey together begins in earnest on this day. It is you. It is me together again. It's a beautiful thing to say. Uh, will we be like Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg? In the 2019 World Series, two conquering heroes, you and me. Or is this going to be more like Thelma and Louise, you know, driving off the cliff together? I don't know. I don't know. But either way, we ride. And it is great to have you on board. Thank you for all the great feedback over the last few days. The Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I have already been inundated with emails. And that's a wonderful thing. So thank you for that. I'm in the process of getting back to every single one of you. Lots of great tweets as well, at Al Galdi. Keep it coming. I want to be swimming uh, in your thoughts, in your feelings, in your wants for this podcast, even in your complaints regarding this podcast. you got problems? Go ahead and uh, spew them on me. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But great to hear uh, from all of you over these last few days. The revolution, my friends, uh, is underway. Before we truly get going with today's show, I do want to thank some people who have helped me to get this podcast going. Uh, Kevin Sheehan, and I was actually on his podcast over the weekend, so a thank you to him. A thank you to Mark Stern, uh, a.k.a. Nigel from the Tony Kornheiser Show. Sterno has been invaluable in putting this thing together, so I want to thank him. And I want to thank the voice of the Washington football team, Brent Weinstein. Uh, he's also very much involved in the podcasting world, and uh, he helped me out a lot in terms of, you know, just talking about how things work and some things to be thinking about. So a very big thank you to all three of those guys. Worked with all three of them uh, at the Team 980 over the years and uh, did want to give each one a public salute 
regarding this podcast. Now, when it comes to my departure from the Team 980, I will be talking about that. I will be opening up about that. I don't think today's the day to do that because we have a lot of sports we need to get into. But uh, I will be doing that. So I'm not sure exactly when, sooner rather than later, but th- there will be a uh, a pipe bomb pod, okay? There will be a podcast on which we get into the nitty and the gritty, and we will uh, pull back the curtain on what's been going on here. So uh, I do want to let you know uh, about that. But for now, it is time for Sports Conversation. Remember, this podcast is every weekday, all right? This is not, you know, once a week or two or three times a week, every weekday. Monday through Friday, we get it out uh, up and early by 5 a.m. So, you know, whatever you happen to be doing early in your mornings, I probably don't want to know what many of you are doing early in your mornings, but that's okay. That's okay. Whatever you're doing, you will have this podcast available to you. Uh, thank you to all of those who have subscribed, and please feel free to continue uh, to do that. Uh, five-star rating, if you can do that, that helps a lot, so we'd appreciate that. And spread the word. Let people know that the Al Galdi podcast is a thing. Like I said on the intro pod, you are not beholden. You are not a prisoner to local sports talk radio, okay? You have options, and this podcast now is an option, and I'm very excited for that. Now, I do have to also run one more thing by you. When you set up a podcast, you have to let the uh, the companies that will be carrying your podcast know, is this going to be a cursing podcast or not? And, and you actually have to live up to that. Like, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to curse and then drop a bunch of F-bombs. So I said that this will be a clean podcast. I, I think I gave it a PG rating. I didn't give it a G rating. I gave it a PG rating. So I don't know. Do you want me dropping F-bombs? Do you, do you want me cursing up a storm? Do you want me to sound like Ron Rivera sounded in that famous halftime speech he gave while he was Carolina Panthers head coach uh, during which he was mic'd up there for that speech? I, you know, I, I'm like, I'm not a big cursor. I'm not going to say I never do it because I'm sure I do do it, but I don't really, it doesn't feel natural to be cursing while doing this, but you tell me. I know some people do it, so if you want it, maybe I can work in one every now and again, but I did say, I did say uh, this will be a, for the most part, clean pod, so I did want to let you know about that. All right. Hey, how about it? Let's talk some sports. Ah, Yes. Did you like that? That is my super sophisticated stinger to separate one segment from another segment on this podcast. I I tell you, we spared no expense in putting this podcast together. One more time, here is the super expensive, highly sophisticated stinger separator for segments on the Al Goldie podcast. Oh man, come on. Where else are you going to get high quality audio like that? All right, let's do this thing now. Um, so I was thinking about, okay, the Washington football team, it's what most people care about the most. I know everybody's different, but, you know, by and large, it's what a lot of you have as your number one item, okay? We talk D.C. sports, and we talk all D.C. sports on this show, and we'll be getting into the Capitals and the Terrapins and the Wizards and the Hoyas uh, as this installment of the Al Galdi podcast progresses. But I wanted to kind of start off with a Washington football team conversation. And I was thinking about, okay, so I haven't been on the air for about three weeks. A lot happens every week with really every team, but especially with the football team. For whatever reason, there's never really an off week. Even when the season is done, there's still so much to sink your teeth into. And so I feel like I've kind of missed a lot. So I was saying, all right, well, do you want to do like one of these catch-up things where you talk about stuff that happened, you know, two and a half, three weeks ago when it's old news to everybody else? Like, I don't really want to do that. 
But I was thinking about this. So with this offseason, of course, nothing matters more than the quarterback situation. And it's not to say that it's the only thing that matters. You know, things like Brandon Sheriff's contract situation matters. And there was actually some news on that today with the Washington Post report on Sunday that the Washington football team will be talking contract with Brandon Sheriff very soon, or at least is expected to be talking contract with him very soon and is uh, wanting to be signing him to a long-term extension. So, you know, there's that. There's stuff like, you know, are they going to re-sign Ronald Darby? And, you know, are they going to beef themselves up at receiver and tight end? And, you know, there are a lot of other little things like that too, but nothing matters more than the quarterback situation. What is the quarterback room going to look like in 2021? What's going to happen with Alex Smith, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen? To what extent are they viable options for the upcoming season? And if, in fact, there is a third yet-to-be-named participant in the quarterback mix, who will that person be? Who should that person be? So with all this stuff kind of swirling and, you know, you hear about, well, you know, Derek Carr, Marcus Mariota, Ryan Fitzpatrick's name has come up a bunch here recently. There are many more. I thought I could kind of establish things with where I'm at in the Washington football team quarterback conversation. And I'm not sure why this is, but I'm feeling kind of biblical on this Monday. And I feel like there's a higher power watching over us right now, standing with us as we ride off on this journey that is the Al Galdi podcast. I'm feeling an inspiration from the burgundy and gold heavens in the sky. I have for you in this moment what I will decree as my five 2021 Washington football team offseason quarterback commandments. Yes, like lightning from the heavens, it has come down upon us. The five Washington football team quarterback commandments for this 2021 offseason. See, you weren't sure. You said, is Goldie going to be breaking news on this podcast? I have for you the five commandments regarding quarterback this offseason for our football team. So here we go. 2021 Washington football team offseason quarterback commandment number one. Thou shalt part ways with Alex Smith. Alex Smith, yes, was a great, wonderful, feel-good story from this past season. Everyone understands that, right? Wins the Associated Press Comeback Player of the Year just a few weeks ago. Gets 49 of the 50 first-place votes. How about that, by the way? Some dope voting for Ben Roethlisberger and not Alex to get Comeback Player of the Year. But everyone understands it was a wonderful story. Everyone understands the record. Oh, the record was so good with Alex this past season. And it was. He went 5-1 and one in the 2020 season. But I think everyone understands, too. He overall just wasn't very good, okay? The bar is low in terms of what the quarterback play for this franchise has been over the last few years. And yes, Alex has done a lot more winning than he has losing when he's quarterback for this team. But also, yes... He is very limited physically, and I say that even, you know, before he suffered the quote-unquote right calf injury, which now seems to have been something very different from a right calf injury, you know, and that's per Alex when he talks about it as a bone contusion. But, you know, this is not some hot take here. Uh, It's it's really funny the way this Alex thing has trended. He is universally beloved for all that he overcame, but he also now is universally regarded as someone who should not be on the team next year. Now, I don't know if he's going to be on the team or not. I don't think Ron Rivera is all that gung-ho about Alex being on the team 
in 2021. And I don't think it's a personal thing against Alex. But if you listen to the way Ron has talked about this Alex circumstance, first of all, it was Ron who months ago brought up the idea of Alex potentially retiring. And then since then, Ron has been very noncommittal to Alex being back on the team for 2021. This has happened multiple times. Whenever Ron gets asked about Alex, it's never, well, golly gee, I hope he's back on the team. Or for sure, we want him back on the team. It's always kind of, well, you know, we got to look at things. And Alex has got to decide on some things. And, you know, there is a chance Alex is back. Well, of course there's a chance. He's under contract for next year. But you never get the feeling from Ron that he is just in love with Alex being on the team in 2021. It's a 20 plus million dollar cap hit. He's very limited from a mobility standpoint. And the overall performance as a quarterback in 2020, yes, there are some things you can't quantify, but that which you can quantify, it just wasn't that good. So I think it's time to move on from Alex. It's been a wonderful story in terms of the comeback, but I think it's time to sort of say, let's get out while the getting was still relatively good. Have him leave the team on a high note. If he wants to continue playing, more power to him. I'm not trying to tell the guy what to do with his life. If he doesn't want to retire, and some of the recent indications seem to be that he wants to continue playing, more power to him. Go ahead and keep playing. I don't think it should be here. I don't think Alex is a road to anywhere significant. I think that he's limited, and I'd rather spend my cap space and my time on someone for whom there is upside, not someone who's just trying to hold on to a career that's been very good, and he's got nothing to be ashamed of. So commandment number one, thou shalt part ways with Alex Smith. 2021 Washington football team offseason quarterback commandment number two. Thou shalt first and foremost look to the draft. So this to me matters as much as anything. And it's a massive unknown. It's a major wild card. I've gotten a kick the last few weeks about all of the different veteran quarterbacks whose names have come up regarding our team, right? First, it was Matthew Stafford. Then it was Derek Carr. More recently, it's been Marcus Mariota and Sam Darnold and Ryan Fitzpatrick. And it just feels like any quarterback with a pulse and a social security number is a person for whom there is interest from at least some people in our fan base. And I get it. And I I do feel like we should be open to anything and everything. But I feel like there's a bigger picture and a much better solution to all of this that just keeps getting glossed over. And that is, yes, the draft. I mean, let me ask you this. If you could script how this offseason goes in terms of finding high-level quarterback play for 2021, what would you script? What's the ideal scenario when it comes to finding another quarterback for this team? It's not even a conversation. The ideal scenario would be Instead of trading an asset or assets for a veteran, you draft someone, you get someone on the team with low football mileage on his body, you get someone on the team who you have at least four years of control over, maybe five if you spend a first round pick and you exercise that fifth year option, and you do your quarterback position that way. You bring in your competition for Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen that way. You don't give up a first round pick or, you know, a second rounder and a third rounder or anything like that. You spend your first round pick or your second round pick or one of your third round picks on a quarterback who you like. Now, are you going to be in love with someone who you take beyond the first round? No, because by definition, you're not in love with that person if you waited beyond the first round to take that person. 
And we don't know how Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney and Chris Polian feel about this quarterback class. You know, it kind of seems like, well, if they've been in on Matthew Stafford and they've had interest in Derek Carr and Marcus Mariota and potentially Sam Darnold and who knows who else, isn't that an indication that the Washington football team brass doesn't love this quarterback class or at least doesn't love the quarterbacks who presumably will be available to Washington in this draft? And that may well be the case. It may be. But we're still relatively early in the draft process. And especially with Mayhew and Herney and Polian, they just got here. So it's not really clear how much work they have done on this quarterback class. This is said to be a deep quarterback draft class. Now, what something is said to be versus what that something ends up being can be two very different things. And it is very possible that Ron and Marty and Martin and Chris and Scott Turner and Ken Zampezi and anyone else whose opinion matters Look at this quarterback class and see Trevor Lawrence and then see a bunch of guys, you know, or see maybe Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson and then just see a bunch of guys. So we don't know how they view this, but here's the deal. You don't have to just be dead set on a Lawrence or a Wilson to feel like you can get at least a decent quarterback out of this class. What if Justin Fields plummets in this draft. And it doesn't feel like that's going to happen, but we don't know. You know, in 2017, nobody thought Jonathan Allen would plummet to 17 in that draft, and yet he did, and Washington gobbled him up. I mean, the first Todd McShay mock draft for this 2021 draft did have Fields going all the way to the Patriots at number 15. So you never know with this stuff, but, you know, put aside Fields. Uh, What if Mac Jones is someone who Washington really likes? What if Kyle Trask is someone who Washington really likes? What if Trey Lance's stock drops and you maybe have a shot at getting him? And remember, it doesn't have to be the guy drops all the way to Washington's first round pick at 19. What if the guy drops to say 15, all right? Because, you know, obviously going from 19 to 15, making a trade up for that, it's doable. You know, it's not going up from 19 to one to get Trevor Lawrence or something like that. But I just look at this and I'm like, I think the draft is being dismissed. I think it's being way underplayed. And for all the talk about, you know, Washington should spend the first round pick on a receiver or Washington should spend the first round pick on a linebacker or Washington should spend the first round pick to try to beef up the offensive line. Maybe, maybe, but there's nothing wrong with saying, well, we're not going to get Lawrence and maybe we don't get Zach Wilson or even Justin Fields, but you know, we really like Mac Jones or we really like Kyle Trask or we are intrigued by one of these guys, you know, a Trey Lance if he falls. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. And I think that is a very viable, and like I said, if I could script this, that would be what I would want from Washington this offseason at quarterback. Use the draft. Don't trade assets to get someone like a Mariota or a Darnold who, you know, I mean, we don't know what they may think he can be, but we know what each guy has been. You know, each guy has a significant injury history as well. It's like get a fresh face, a fresh body, someone who you can mold and have that person be a part of your quarterback mix. So commandment number two, thou shalt first and foremost look to the draft. 2021 offseason Washington football team quarterback commandment number three. Thou shalt not make a panic move. Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen. We don't know truly what each guy is going to end up being. But we do know with each guy there is promise and there is hope. Now, to what extent there is promise and hope is something that certainly can be debated, okay? But we all saw what Taylor Heineke, aka Heineke, 
as Chase Young said, did in that wild card round loss to Tampa Bay. We all saw the Washington football team announce the re-signing of Taylor Heineke to a two-year contract just a few weeks ago. And no, the numbers in the contract are not overwhelming. But remember, he had been set to be a restricted free agent. You didn't have to do a multi-year deal, and yet Washington did do a multi-year deal. Game a two-year contract. Now, he's very cuttable, Heineke is, with this contract. But it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, we're not sure what you are, but we think you could be something. And so instead of just giving you a restricted free agent tender and just trying to bring it back that way, we're going to give you a two-year contract and kind of hedge our bets a little bit here where, you know, if you flop or you just can't stay healthy, we can certainly cut you. But if you end up being the guy and you end up being halfway decent, we have you at a very much bargain rate over the next two seasons. And then with Kyle Allen, he's set to be an exclusive rights free agent. Those guys almost always end up getting re-signed. Yes, it was a small sample size with Allen in 2020, no doubt, just the four games. But statistically speaking, it's not even close when you talk about who was the best of the three starting quarterbacks for Washington during the regular season. We'll put Heineke off to the side. His start, of course, came in the postseason game, and he was outstanding in that game. But when you look at Kyle Allen versus Dwayne Haskins versus Alex Smith, statistically, in the 2020 season, the gap between Kyle and then Alex and Dwayne, it's like the Grand Canyon. If you look at each guy through the prism of the ESPN stat total QBR, which is on a scale of 0 to 100, how about this? Dwayne Haskins over seven games for Washington in 2020, a total QBR of 31. Terrible. Alex Smith in the 2020 regular season, over eight games, a total QBR of 34.8. Not good. Kyle Allen in the 2020 regular season, over, yes, just four games, but a total QBR of 74.5. That is a drastic difference. Kyle Allen, through the prism of analytics, was by miles better than both Alex and Dwayne in 2020. Allen's QPR was 40 points better than both Alex's and Dwayne's in 2020. I mean, I don't think you can just ignore that. And especially when you tag team that with what Ron Rivera said the Wednesday before the week 17 game against the Philadelphia Eagles to clinch the NFC East. Remember this. Washington is going into this win and you're in scenario. This game at the Eagles in week 17, Sunday night football, right? We're unsure at that time where we at from a health standpoint with Alex. But Ron Rivera, the Wednesday before that game, gets asked about whether Washington would have contended for the playoffs if not for Alex Smith. It was in, in some ways a softball question because it was kind of like just trying to get Ron to talk up about the importance of Alex and the intangibles of Alex. And remember what Ron said. He said, yeah, we'd be here if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy, okay? He, he Ron said, if we had a healthy Kyle Allen, I really think we could have been in this exact same predicament. That was another example, by the way, of Ron not being all lovey-dovey and being all gung-ho about Alex being back for 2021. But that was Ron, and that was Ron not that long ago. That was on December 30th of last year. So put aside what you and I may think about Kyle Allen. Ron likes Kyle Allen. Now, how much? We'll see. This offseason, I think, will be telling. And yes, Kyle Allen is coming off a significant injury, the dislocated uh, left ankle and reported small fracture that he suffered uh, in that loss to the Giants at FedEx Field in Week 9. But you have options here. You have Heineke, you have Allen. And that is the point of this commandment 
given to us from the burgundy and gold heavens. This is not the 2012 offseason where you're coming out of 2011, you're coming out of Rex Grossman and John Beck, and you have no in-house options. This is not the 2018 offseason where Kirk Cousins has left you, Colt McCoy's coming off a broken leg, and you don't have any true viable in-house options. And so you have to make a panic move and trade for Alex Smith without basically telling anyone, uh, as Bruce Allen didn't tell anyone uh, when that trade was agreed upon Super Bowl week of that year. You have in-house options. How viable they are can be debated. How legit they are, again, can be debated. But Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, going into 2021 with those two as your primary quarterback options, it may not be ideal. It's also not the end of the world. And I don't think it's ridiculous to suggest that you could end up being halfway decent with one or both as your starting quarterback for the upcoming year. You don't have to panic this offseason the way you had to panic in 2012 to make the trade up to take RG3. You don't have to panic this offseason the way you had to panic, or at least you ended up panicking in 2018 and making the trade for Alex Smith. 2021, Washington football team offseason quarterback commandment number four. Thou shalt trade for Sam Darnold or Marcus Mariota only if thou truly believes in the upside of the player. And this is kind of tied to the previous commandment of you don't have to panic. I've seen all the stuff about Darnold and Mariota. I've seen people say, well, I'd give up this for Darnold or I'd give up that for Mariota. And yeah, I could see that guy being better than Allen and Heineke. And yeah, that guy, of course I'd take him over Allen and Heineke. And I look at all that and I'm like, well, I guess maybe. But I don't know how you can look at Sam Darnold or look at Marcus Mariota and be in love with what's in front of you, okay? I mean, with Sam Darnold, sure, you can say he spent his first three seasons with the Woeful Jets. You know, he spent the last two seasons with Adam Gase and his taco eyes. Okay, fine. Go ahead and say that. You're not wrong to say that. The body of work from Darnold has been brutal, okay? Not just like so-so, but brutal. And he's had an injury problem. 2018, he missed three games due to a foot injury. 2019, he missed three games due to mono. And this past year, he missed four games due to a shoulder injury. With Mariota, look, I mean, I know there's this Ryan Tannehill thing of, well, maybe Mariota, a guy who looked to be a bust, can be transformed into a quality quarterback the way Tannehill has been. And if Ron Rivera and company believe that with a Mariota, by all means, trade for him. Like I said, I'm open to just about anything here. But Mariota was very mediocre as a starter with the Tennessee Titans. That was over six seasons and 64 regular season games. I mean, the sample size was not small for Mariota as a starting quarterback with the Titans. The results were extremely mixed. And this increased optimism with Mariota, understand, is based basically on one game. Okay, he played in one game this past year. And it was an impressive performance. It was an overtime loss uh, for the Raiders at home to the Chargers in week 15 on Thursday Night Football. Mariota played well in that game, but it's just one game. So I'm not really interested in doing a Scott Mitchell thing here and taking one game and turning that into, well, this guy's the answer. Now, if you can get him on the cheap and you like some things about him and he is mobile and he's got a great attitude too, you know, he's, he's very well regarded in the locker room, you know, good teammate, etc. You don't have to give up much to get him. If you like, hey, maybe this guy... Just have him as a part of a battle with Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke. Okay, I'm not against that. I'm not against that at all. But I don't want a trade to be forced. I don't want a marriage to be forced just because it's like, well, he's an option or he's a name 
we've heard of. And again, like with Darnold, Mariota has a significant injury history. For all the people who talk about, well, Taylor Heineke can't stay healthy. Kyle Allen can't stay healthy. Darnold and Mariota can't stay healthy. Marcus Mariota, I mean, the list of, of ailments, sprained left MCL, sprained right MCL, fractured right fibula, left hamstring injury, elbow injury, neck injury, foot injury, like on and on you can go with Mariota. So you got to be very careful with these guys. There's a reason these guys are available. There's a reason these guys are dangling out there potentially to be had this offseason. If you want to trade for them and you really believe in the player, go ahead and do it. But don't feel like you have to. You don't have to do anything. And now, our final commandment. 2021 Washington football team offseason quarterback commandment number five. (laughs) Thou shalt be thankful that thou, I love saying thou, did not trade for Matthew Stafford. When we were last speaking about the Washington football team quarterback situation, I was a major endorser of Washington trading for Stafford. And as the reporting has gone, Washington did try to trade for Matthew Stafford. Washington offered at the very least its 2021 first round pick and a third round pick for Stafford. And there's actually a report from this guy, Mike Fisher, a Dallas Cowboys insider for SI.com that Washington offered a one, a three, and a starting player to the Lions for Stafford. That's more than reasonable. And if that wasn't going to be enough for Stafford, then that's fine. The price that the Rams ended up paying to get Stafford Jared Goff, two first round picks and a third round pick was too much, was too high. And I'm glad that Washington ended up not making this trade. I wanted Washington to trade for Stafford within reason. That to me was unreasonable. You know, the giving up of the two first round picks and including a third round pick. Stafford is good, but he's not great. Stafford is a guy with a lot of mileage on his body. And how about what Stafford revealed not that long ago about that said mileage? Stafford told Mitch Album of the Detroit Free Press in a column that was published February 11th that Stafford in 2020, did you see this? He played through a torn UCL in his left elbow and also right thumb, rib, and ankle injuries. Now, he played in all 16 games, and that's been the thing with Stafford. He doesn't miss games. I mean, he did miss eight games in 2019 with a broken back. But prior to that, he had not missed a game since 2010. So like he posts, he does, but he's been banged up a lot. The list of ailments he's dealt with over the years is like a mile long. And the fact that he this past year, I mean, torn UCL in his left elbow. Now, that's not his throwing elbow. I'll grant you that. But torn UCL, you know what that is? That's the Tommy John injury. That That's the injury that causes people to get Tommy John surgery. I read that. I was like, man, this guy, he's, he's like a walking mesh unit with all the things He's had to deal with. So when I look at what the Rams gave up to get him, I combine that with this reveal from Stafford of all the different things he dealt with this past year. You know, he's a guy who's into his 30s. Like, I think he's good. And I wish Washington had traded for him, but not at that price. And I tell you, the injury reveal that Stafford gave to Album, I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of glad this did not happen now. Let's move on to whatever may be next. So there you have it, the five commandments from the heavens regarding the Washington football team at quarterback this offseason. All right, so let's get into some of our other area teams. And I tell you, the sports gods are smiling upon this podcast because we have not one, not two, not three, but four of our teams doing quite well these days. And we will begin with the Capitals. What a win for the Caps on Sunday. 
They finally get a matinee win in this 2020-2021 regular season. And they do so in dramatic, come-from-behind fashion. That was some kind of job for the Caps. A 4-3 win over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon. A game that was initially scheduled for Sunday night. And then Saturday, the Caps find out, well, no, the game's being bumped up to 2 o'clock do the NHL having some issues with that uh, Boston Bruins-Philadelphia Flyers outdoor game at Lake Tahoe. And by the way, did you see some of the, the sights from that game? Even if you didn't watch it, just some of the like still shots, the photos. What a beautiful setting there, Lake Tahoe, for one of those NHL outdoors games. But the, the Caps, so they had been so bad in these afternoon games this year. 0-3-2 after a 4-1 loss to the Rangers at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon. The Caps had like no life in that game. Peter Laviolette talked about it during his virtual post-game press conference. You find out Saturday, the next night's game is now going to be an afternoon game. So 0-3-2, it looked like you were staring at 0-4-2 in terms of the Caps in this curse of the day game. And the Caps get down 2-0 to the Devils early on on Sunday afternoon. You're like, oh my God, what a nightmare this is. But the Caps ended up pulling off the win. They overcome a 2-0 second period deficit, score four consecutive goals. You know, you look at the Caps. The record is 9-5-3. and three. They are in second place in the East Division. And when you consider, you know, first season for your new head coach, Peter Laviolette, I mean, he's an experienced head coach, but it's his first season with the Caps. When you consider the many absences the Caps have had to deal with, you know, it wasn't that long ago, the Caps were having to have TJ Oshie as their regular second-line center because they were minus so many different centers. of Evgeny Kuznetsov and Lars Eller and Brian Pino. You know, Kuznetsov missed eight games due to the COVID-19 protocols. Justin Schultz, the defenseman, he missed four games due to an upper body injury. Connor Sheary, who's been a very key winger for the Caps, uh, he missed a game due to a lower body injury. The Caps were without Dmitry Orloff, another defenseman for a while, have been without the goaltender Ilya Samsonov for weeks now, although no, he's now back with the team, although he still hasn't played just yet. Alex Ovechkin missed time, right, with the COVID-19 protocols. So you had these absences, but the Caps have found a way to pile up some wins here. Nine, five, and three. Caps are in second place in the East. And remember, this year, with the reconfiguration of the standings and the schedule due to the virus, the Caps are doing nothing but playing. East Division teams this season. It's a 56-game regular season. The NHL realigned into four divisions. Teams are only playing intra-division games this year. Caps are doing a nice job here. And this win yesterday over New Jersey, Caps go three for four on the power play. The power play has been so good so far this year. You get three power play goals in that game yesterday. And you get a monster game from Oshie. Oshie snapped a nine-game goalless drought, two power play goals, to go with a primary assist on an Alex Ovechkin power play goal in the third period. But, you know, first power play goal, Oshie, 13-38 in the second period, in the high slot, deflecting a point shot by the defenseman, John Carlson. Then Oshie again in the third period, his second power play goal, terrific pass from Kuznetsov in the right circle, Oshie scoring from the high slot, which is seconds left on that power play, and a great screen on that goal by Ovechkin on the Devils goaltender, Aaron Dell. And then on the Ovechkin power play goal in the third period, what a shot by Ovi, a, basically a zero angle shot while wide open, straddling the goal line next to the left post. Oshie wins the face off to begin the sequence and makes an excellent pass to Ovechkin from the right circle through the crease. Terrific job by Oshie in that game on Sunday. And you know, it's interesting because Laviolette shuffled his lines for that game against New Jersey. And one of the shuffles 
was the dropping of TJ Oshie. Oshie went from the top line to the third line on Sunday. The top line in that afternoon loss to the Rangers on Saturday afternoon was abysmal. Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, Oshie. That line had a really bad game on Saturday. Each guy went pointless. Kuznetsov and Oshie each had just one shot on goal. The three guys accounted for the Caps' three worst five-on-five shot attempt percentages in the game per natural stat trick. So Laviolette, and he's not been shy about this so far this year. He shuffled the lines up for Sunday. Oshie from line one to line three. Kuznetsov from line one to line two. And Shiri actually got bumped up from the third line to the second line. And at least when it came to, you know, the production from Oshie, I mean, there were results. Now, Oshie did a lot of the, uh, the production uh, via the power play, but still, Oshie had a very good game. Uh, the second line for the Caps on Sunday, Jacob Vron of Genny Kuznetsov and Connor Shiri, terrific work by them. Those three guys accounted for the Caps' top three, five-on-five shot attempt percentages in the game per natural stat trick. And if you look at what happened when all three guys were on the ice in five-on-five situations, which is always kind of the, the best way to measure this stuff, you just measure puck possession, i.e. total shot attempts, five-on-five, because it's going to get skewed if you start looking at power play versus penalty kill. The Caps in that game on Sunday, when it was Vrana, Kuznetsov, and Shiri on the ice, five-on-five, 18 shot attempts for versus three shot attempts against. The puck possession battle was won in dominant fashion with Vrana, Kuznetsov, and Shiri on the ice five on five. So great work by that reconfigured second line uh, in this win over the Devils on Sunday. So good to see that. Good to see Oshi get going. Hopefully he's, you know, he's back on point. How about the goaltending too for the Caps on Sunday? Craig Anderson got the start. First time in 14 games that Vitek Vanacek was not the cap starting goaltender. Vanacek, I mean, <laughs> this guy, they are leaning on him so much. Samsonov has missed time. And Laviolette has just kept starting Vanacek one game after another, after another. You know, he's had some bad outings, but I, I, I can't be that hard on the guy. He's a rookie and he's being leaned on a ton. So they finally give him a break on Sunday. Craig Anderson gets a start. Craig Anderson is ancient. This is his age 39 season. It's his first start since March 11th, 2020. And, you know, all things considered, Anderson did a pretty good job. I mean, I think the the expectations are low with him, but he stopped 23 of 26 shots. I mean, it's hard to be that upset with the job that Anderson did in net against the Devils. I do wonder about this, though, with Sam Sonoff. So the Caps on Friday morning recalled him from Hershey. He'd had a couple of, like, rehab starts for Hershey. One was good. The first one was not very good. He gave up five goals in a game uh, two Sunday afternoons now, Valentine's Day. He stopped just 24-29 shots in an overtime loss for Hershey. But if you weren't going to start Samsonov on Sunday, why did you bring him back from Hershey on Friday? I thought that was kind of odd. Like, why not give him another rehab start to see where he's at? So that was kind of strange. But Anderson did a halfway decent job. Caps get themselves another win, and they're doing very well here. 9-5-3, and three, two home games against Pittsburgh uh, coming up here this week, Tuesday night and Thursday night. All right, speaking of doing well, the Maryland Terrapins, the fighting Mark Turgeons, another win on Sunday afternoon. And I tell you what, a Maryland season that looked like it could be a complete debacle is now anything but, and this may well be the best coaching job that Mark Turgeon has done over his 10 years as Maryland head coach. And yes, 10 years. That's how long it's been for the Turge as the Terrapins head man. But this was a season that started off in a very bad way when it came to conference play. Maryland was undersized 
Maryland was getting roughed up in an ultra difficult Big Ten. Maryland was one and five in the Big Ten through January 7th. And since then, it's been a totally different story. Seven and four in the conference since then. Now four consecutive victories, the latest of which this 68-59 win at Rutgers on Sunday. And it's not just that this was another win. This game felt, and I stress the word felt because we don't know anything with certainty, certainty. But this win felt like it went a long way towards securing an NCAA tournament berth for the Terps. We will see where the rest of the season takes us. But you look at Maryland now, 14 and 10 overall, 8 and 9 in the Big Ten. And that's significant this year because the Big Ten is brutal. This is the best the Big Ten has maybe ever been. And so if you're at 500 or even close to 500 in the Big Ten, you got a really good shot at making the NCAA tournament. But, you know, you look at like some of the advanced stuff for Maryland now. Maryland now is up to number 30 in Division One in the net. All right. And those of you who are hardcore college basketball fans, the net is the NCAA evaluation tool, which is now the key ranking system that is used when determining the NCAA tournament. The net essentially replaced the RPI, the rating percentage index, uh, back in 2018. But you're number 30 in the net. You are five and nine now in what are called quad one games. And it it gets very complicated with what qualifies as a quad one game, but it's basically based on who you're playing and where you're playing them. And and it uses the net to determine the quality of who you're playing. But five and nine in quad one games is, you know, you can certainly work with something like that. And specific to the game on Sunday, the win at Rutgers, the job that Maryland did defensively in this game. I mean, look, it's not new at this point. Maryland is an excellent defensive team. But man, this defense... It is their game in and game out. You know, Maryland, in a lot of ways, is the opposite of the Wizards. It's the offense with Maryland that worries you. It's these painful scoring droughts that Maryland is prone to that bothers you. But the defense is almost always there. And that's been a staple for these Mark Turge and Terrapins teams. They play defense. And the win at Rutgers, Terps hold Rutgers to 38.2% shooting, including 5 of 22 on threes. Terps held Rutgers in the first half to just 20 points. The Terps held Rutgers to one made field goal over the final eight minutes, 42 seconds in that first half. Terps had nine steals, generated 15 Rutgers turnovers, scored 20 points off those turnovers. And how about this when it comes to the Maryland defense in the win at Rutgers? The guy who scorched Maryland in the initial meeting between these two teams this season was held silent in this game. Ron Harper Jr. Yes, the son of of the former NBA player, Ron Harper, right? The three championships he won with the Bulls. He won two titles with the Lakers. Ron Harper Jr. is on Rutgers. Ron Harper Jr. in Maryland's loss to Rutgers at Xfinity Center on December 14th was outstanding for Rutgers in that game. Five of eight on threes, 27 points. That was a bad loss for Maryland uh, that night. Uh, against Rutgers in College Park back in December. Terps were consensus two and a half point favorites, lost the game by 14, 74-60. That was actually Maryland's first Big Ten game of the year. And it's interesting, right? You look back at where things were then versus where they are now. But anyway, Harper, who torched Maryland in December, gets largely silenced in this game on Sunday. Just six points, one of six shooting, including 0 of 4 on three. So Maryland's defense was terrific. A key part of that is a guy who took his warrior status, I thought, to an even higher level on Sunday. And that is Daryl Morsell. So Daryl Morsell is Maryland's best defender. He certainly played a role in containing Ron Harper Jr. But how about what Morsell went through 
in this game on Sunday. Not one, but two right shoulder injuries. Uh, Mark Turgeon after the game talked about the shoulder having to be twice popped back into place. We're not sure of the certainty of the injury just yet, but the shoulder pops out, gets popped back in. It then pops out again, and then that was basically it for Marcel in the game. But the, the guy is tough as nails. You may remember he broke his face earlier this season, only ended up missing just the one game. But Marcel, 28 minutes as a starter, 12 points, 5 of 8 shooting, 3 assists versus 2 turnovers and 3 steals. And, you know, it's not just what he did, it's when he did what he did. So Maryland led for the entire second half, but did allow Rutgers to get within 6 at 47-41. And then Daryl Morcell happened. He had a beautiful driving and one layup in the paint with heavy traffic and a shot clock winding down to put Maryland up by 8, 49-41 with 6.29 left uh, in the second half. Now, he didn't miss the free throw. Morcell actually struggled on free throws, 2 of 5. Maryland actually struggled on free throws, 18 of 28 in this game. That's been a problem for the Terps this year, the free throw shooting. But Morcell with the big and one bucket there. And then not long after that, transition dunk for Morcell off a steal by Jarris Hamilton for a 10-point Maryland lead, 51-41 with 6.04 left. Morcell was clutch. Morcell is tough as nails. And Morcell in so many ways embodies the great defense that Maryland is putting on display game in and game out. Look, the offense does worry you. Maryland just 6-20 on threes in this game, but did do well on twos, 16-27, and got production from a lot of different guys. You know, I think one of the key aspects of this Maryland rise since the bad start in the conference has been the consistency of Erica Yala and Aaron Wiggins. Those two guys who really were up and down, they've kind of settled into being for the most part up. Now, you know, they don't always make their shots, but, you know, Ayala on Sunday, three of eight on threes, 14 points, couple of steals. Wiggins on Sunday, just one of three on threes, but 13 points, 10 rebounds and two steals. Uh, Dante Scott, 11.7 boards, two assists, no turnovers. Hakeem Hart, very productive in just 20 minutes as a starter, 12 points, four rebounds, four assists, two turnovers. So, you know, this is not a team with like one great star or, you know, two great stars. It's not a Jalen Smith, Anthony Cowan scenario or anything close to that. But we've gone from Maryland having Dante Scott as clearly its best player earlier in the year to now you have a lot of different people who are emerging as heroes in these games. You know, Ayala and Wiggins and Scott, Jarris Hamilton, has had some big games. And, and obviously, again, the heartbeat of this team, the defensive soul of this team, Daryl Morcell, uh, cannot say enough about his grit and toughness and what he's brought. And you got to give the Turge credit. I know a lot of people don't like to do this. And I, I've been chief among those who have said point blank period with Turgeon. It's not that he's a bad coach. It's just that over his time at Maryland, and again, it's 10 years now, there just has not been a lot of high achievement. There just have not been many big key signature wins. There certainly have not been any great deep NCAA tournament runs. We'll never know what would have happened in 2020, but there was no tournament in that year. And you can't just assume that Maryland would have been like, you know, an elite eight team in 2020. Like maybe, but Maryland also could have gotten bounced in the first weekend of that tournament had it actually ended up happening. But here you have this Maryland team, again, undersized. Again, you know, no Stick Smith, no Anthony Cowan. You get off to the one and five start in the brutal Big Ten, and you're now at eight and nine in the conference, and looking far more like you will probably be in the NCAA tournament as opposed to probably being out of the NCAA tournament. And it's very nice to be able to say that, and I'm not sure that a lot of people thought we would be able to say that uh, not that long ago. So great job, Terps are rolling here, eight and nine in the conference, and there's really not that much left 
in the regular season. Maryland is home to Michigan State, but not till Sunday afternoon. There'll be a two o'clock tip at Xfinity Center. And that's the first of three remaining regular season games. That's it. Home to Michigan State at Northwestern and home to Penn State. Part three of our area teams doing quite well right now belongs to the Georgetown Hoyas. As yes, the Hoyas won again over the weekend. Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Hoyas win! Thank you, Rich Votkin. The Hoyas did win. I'm not sure how much it means at this point because Georgetown is very much on the outside looking in when it comes to the NCAA tournament. But credit where credit's due. Georgetown gets to 7-10 and overall, 5-7 and in the Big East, an 81-75 win over Seton Hall at McDonough Arena on Saturday evening. And, and the thing with Georgetown is this. Hoyas are 4-2 and since having four straight games postponed due to a positive COVID-19 test. I mean, we have no idea these days, right, how teams are going to respond to being out for a while due to the coronavirus. Hoyas were out for quite a while. You know, while, remember the Wizards had their COVID-19 break? Uh, Georgetown had one going on more or less at the same time. Hoyas missed four straight games, but four and two since then. Now, Georgetown, as of this morning, is a mere 96th in the net rankings. So it's not like Georgetown all of a sudden is, you know, first four out or right on the bubble of the tournament. But Georgetown has been playing better and got a nice win over Seton Hall at McDonough on Saturday evening. You know, it's interesting with Georgetown in this game on Saturday evening, Seton Hall is not some patsy. Seton Hall came into the game 10-5 and in the Big East. Now, Georgetown was just like a four-and-a-half, five-point underdog for the game. But still, you didn't beat up on, like, some jabroni team. Seton Hall's pretty good. La Jolla's, look, it's not perfect. It's basically never perfect with Georgetown. Hoyas blew a 12-point first-half lead in this game, but shot the ball very well. 50% shooting, including 10-16 on threes. Got another good game from Jamarco Pickett. He's been so good recently. 2-2 two two on threes, 20.7 rebounds, 3 assists versus 2 turnovers, and a couple of blocks. You got production from Judy A. Bile. You got production from the freshman Dante Harris, who, by the way, flirted with a triple-double. He had 14 points, 8 assists, 7 rebounds. Uh, did have 5 turnovers, but still, overall, a good game for him. Uh, Kudis Wahab was good again. 11 points, 11 rebounds, and three blocks. Donald Carey off the bench, just 16 minutes as a reserve, 11 points and three steals. And you won despite one of your best players, Javon Blair, only scoring three points. Javon Blair, one of four on threes in the game. Now, he did other things. He was a part of a pretty good defensive effort for Georgetown. Hoyas held Seton Hall to six of 21 on threes, and Blair did have five assists versus two turnovers, but just three points for him. And yet still, you end up being able uh, to pull off the win. Now, like I said, it's not pretty with Georgetown. You know, they blew that first half lead. Hoyas had 18 turnovers in the game. Hoyas got dominated in the paint in the game, 40-24, and really didn't have a good answer for Seton Hall's best player, the uh, 6'11 kid, Sandro Mamukelosvili. Three of six on threes, 22 points, five rebounds, and three assists. But Georgetown got a win. And I tell you, with the Hoyas, and the bar certainly has been lowered for them in recent years. But I thought for a while there, and this may still be the case, you had to wonder about Patrick Ewing's future as Georgetown's head coach. You know, John Thompson is no longer with us. You could see the Hoyas looking at this situation and saying, look, we're not winning. We're not making NCAA tournaments. Everybody loves Patrick, but the results just aren't there. The ties to the, you know, 1980s Hoyas are going away, and maybe it's just time for a clean slate. 
that may still end up happening. You know, it's tricky because with the pandemic, you don't have schools trying to buy out coaches' contracts. But Georgetown's been better here lately. Like I said, four and two since the COVID-19 break, five and seven in the Big East. And some of these recent wins have been impressive. Like I said, Seton Hall's a pretty good team. One of the Hoyas' other wins during the stretch was an 86-79 win at then number 15 Creighton on February 3rd. Uh, Javon Blair, Jamarco Pickett, each was outstanding in that game. So the Hoyas have been better. It's still a very difficult path Georgetown would have to make an NCAA tournament. And as is the case for every other team in college basketball, time is running out. I mean, Georgetown has just four games left in its regular season, home to UConn on Tuesday night, then at DePaul, home to Xavier, and at UConn. And that brings us to the final of our four area teams doing well right now. The damn Washington Wizards. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Our lovable, huggable NBA team, like Maryland, like Georgetown, the Wizards season looked to be on a one-way street to DeBacoville. The Wizards were a mess. They were wretched. Their defense was an embarrassment again. The Wizards were dealing with all kind of absences. You know, Rui Hachimura missed time with conjunctivitis, of all things. Thomas Bryant suffered a partial tear of an ACL and almost certainly has been lost for the season. Russell Westbrook would not play in the second games of back-to-backs. It just looked lost. Then you had a COVID-19 break for the Wizards where they had an outbreak and they missed a bunch of games. And the season felt hopeless. If you were like me, a lifelong Bullet-slash-Wizards fan, it felt like, you know what, maybe they do need to blow this whole thing up and move on. And hey, maybe they still end up doing just that. But you know what, at least for right now, we can actually say some nice things and have some good positive vibes for our Wizards, who tonight, by the way, are at the reigning defending NBA champion, Los Angeles Lakers. Monday night, 10 o'clock, the Wizards at the Lakers. Second in the West are the Lakers at 22 and 9. And no, the Wizards are not in prime playoff position in the Eastern Conference. But I tell you what, the Wizards at 10 and 17 are a mere, believe it or not, three games out of the seventh and eighth spots in the East. You don't got to be good to end up making the postseason in the East. That's basically been the case in the NBA for 20 years. Why the league doesn't go to open seating, I'll never understand. This this conference discrepancy has been going on forever in terms of the West being better than the East. But hey, that's not the Wizards' problem. They are actually well within striking distance of a playoff spot, believe it or not. Anyway, the Wizards, another win on Saturday night, a win at the Portland Trailblazers. The Wizards pull this off 118-111. The Wizards have a four-game winning streak now for the first time in three years. It had not been since January, February 2018 that the Wizards had won four straight. Now think about that for a moment, right? I mean, a four-game winning streak, it's not that impressive. It's not that monumental. And yet the Wizards hadn't done it in three years, but they've done it now. Four consecutive wins. And you be a Blazers team on Saturday night that, look, Portland is without some key guys right now. C.J. McCollum is out due to injury. Yusuf Nurkic is out due to injury. But Portland did come into the game at 18 and 10. So it's not like you beat up some Patsy on Saturday night. This was another one of these bonkers games for the Wizards. You know, these games, if you watch these Wizards games, I mean, they are, they are whacked out these Wiz games. There's no doubt about that. I mean, the Wiz will get down by a bunch. They'll give up a bunch. 
And then it just kind of cross your fingers, close your eyes, and hope the Wiz can somehow pull it off. But this game on Saturday night, Wizards were down by 14 in the second quarter. The Wizards allowed the Blazers to score 43 points in the first quarter and 37 points in the third quarter. But the Wizards also held the Blazers to 12 points in the second quarter and 19 points in the fourth quarter. So think about that graph in terms of points allowed by the Wiz per quarter on Saturday night. 43 in quarter one, 12 in quarter two, 37 in quarter three, 19 in quarter number four. I mean, it makes no sense. And yet it's exactly what happened. Uh, the Wizards won despite being awful on threes, six of 26. The Wizards won despite Damian Lillard going nuclear in that third quarter. Lillard in the third quarter, five of five on threes, 23 points. He nailed a running pull-up three as time expired in the third quarter. But the thing about the game was, when it came to Lillard, yes, he was lights out in the third quarter, but he didn't really do that much in terms of scoring in the other three quarters. He went just two of 12 on threes in the other three quarters. And he finished with big numbers. That is true. 35 points, 12 assists versus three turnovers and six rebounds. But all things considered, the Wizards actually didn't do that bad of a defensive job on Lillard in the other three quarters. It was quarter number three where Lillard basically had his way. But the Wizards ended up pulling off the win. You know, they had a very similar game, if you've been following the team, the win over Denver uh, this past Wednesday night. That game was nuts. The Wizards in that game overcame a 20-point first quarter deficit. The Wizards in that game allowed the Nuggets to score 41 points in the first quarter. And then the Wizards responded by scoring 46 points in the second quarter. And, you know, that game, I mean, the Wizards allowed the Nuggets to go nuclear on threes, allowed for big games by Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, but the Wizards ended up figuring out a way to get the job done. The truth with the Wizards is this. If their defense can just be passable, like it doesn't have to be great. Wizards don't have to be, you know, the 89-90 bad boy Pistons. They just need to be halfway passable on defense. They can win because their offense can be more than good enough. And you've kind of gotten to that in these recent games. You know, Wizards still have some issues making threes. That is true. But the Wizards can score. They can. And it's not a popular thing these days. And if you're an analytics guy like me, you're not in love with it. But the Wizards do do the mid-range shot actually quite well. It's something Bradley Beal does well. Beal is not a very good three-point shooter. But Beal on twos is money. And this game on Saturday at Portland was emblematic of that. Beal on Saturday night, just two of eight on threes, but 14 of 19 on his twos. He finished with 37.7 rebounds, three assists, did have five turnovers but he also had a couple of steals. Russell Westbrook, okay? Russell Westbrook should not be shooting threes. And thankfully, he didn't shoot many threes on Saturday night. And he actually ended up having a halfway efficient game. Russell Westbrook, by the way, another triple-double on Saturday night. So that's now eight triple-doubles in 20 games for Westbrook with the Wizards. He's now alone in number two on the all-time Wizards regular season triple-doubles list. He's been with the team for 20 games. He's already second in franchise history in triple-doubles, which says as much about the Wizards' history as it says about Westbrook. But Westbrook, 27 points, 13 assists, 11 rebounds. But he went 11 of 17 shooting. That's Usually Westbrook, he'll score, but he'll go like, you know, 6 of 20 from the field or something like that. He only took one three on Saturday night, and he missed it, but he went 11 of 16 on his twos. Now, he did have turnovers. He had seven more turnovers, and he continues to have way too many turnovers. He had eight turnovers in that win over the Nuggets on Wednesday night, but he also had a triple-double uh, Westbrook did 
uh, in that game. So, you know, you're getting guys kind of settling into what they know they can do. Westbrook has been better here lately. I mean, you know, he's still Westbrook. He still has, like I said, too many turnovers. He'll still have some bad shooting games uh, as well. But, you know, it's been one triple-double after another for him. I mean, you got to be fair about it. Beal, like we said, especially on twos, has been very good. Rui Hachimura has been giving the Wizards some very good games here recently. He had 17.7 boards and three steals on Saturday night. And how about his defense? You know, Scott Brooks, during his virtual postgame presser Saturday, was raving about Rui's defense. Rui, in the game against the Blazers there, he guarded the Blazers one through five positions. He guarded every position on the court, Rui did. And if you go by the NBA tracking data, Lillard, when he was guarded by Hachimura on Saturday night, 0 for 4 shooting. Uh, look, it's not saying a lot, but Hachimura is, if not the Wizards' best defensive player, then he's up there. I mean, you know, I, I, like, they're best defenders. There aren't many candidates to choose from, but Hachimura is a candidate, and he did a nice job on Saturday night. Like I said, Brooks could not speak enough about Hachimura and his defensive versatility in that game. I'll say something else, too, about Brooks. So he's altered the starting lineup here recently. Uh, Garrison Matthews has become a staple in the Wizards starting lineup. He started the last five games. Mo Wagner has become a staple in the Wizards lineup. He started the last four games. Denny Abdia actually has been coming off the bench for the last seven games now. And, you know, it's a tricky deal because just because you start, obviously, doesn't mean you play a ton. Like Wagner is starting. He's not necessarily playing a ton. But, you know, that change in the starting lineup, coincidence or not, does kind of coincide with the Wizards winning more lately. And something that was interesting too about Saturday night. So Wagner, this was one of these games where he started but didn't play a lot. That was in part because of Robin Lopez being very good off the bench. Rolo, as he is known, off the bench Saturday night at the Blazers, 10 points, 11 rebounds, including six offensive rebounds, two steals, and a game best plus minus of plus 25. And Lopez did all this in less than 28 minutes of playing time. 10, 11, two steals, and a plus 25 rating. In 27 minutes, 46 seconds off the bench for Robin Lopez. So good job by the Wiz. I mean, they're playing better, you know, and they're doing this still. I mean, they're still waiting on Davies Bertans to become the Davies Bertans. He's supposed to be $80 million contract in the offseason. Bertans was outstanding in the win over Denver on Wednesday night. That is true. Nine of 11 on threes in that game. But Bertans on Saturday night at Portland was back to struggling. Just two of eight on threes in the game, just six points off the bench in the game. He did hit some big threes in the fourth quarter, so I'll give him credit for that. But, you know, it's still kind of waiting on him to find himself. Imagine if he catches fire and, you know, he becomes the Latvian laser that he's paid to be. Wizards have been better in the Woeful East. They got a shot. You always have a shot in the Eastern Conference. It's the way it is every year. You know, it, it feels like every year, multiple sub-500 teams are, if not making the playoffs, then at the very least contending to make the postseason and the Wizards can be one of those teams. Huge test tonight at the Lakers for Washington. And, you know, as is the case right now with the Capitals, with Maryland, even Georgetown, you got some good feeling with our basketball team, the Washington Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. All right, so some good positive feeling in this episode two of the Al Galdi podcast. It's nice to be able to do that. We'll have plenty of time to yell and scream and be negative about things, but we got some teams doing well right now. So that's a very good thing. I want to continue to hear from you. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me to the Al Galdi podcast 
at yahoo.com. Please continue to subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. Cannot thank you enough for the support, but that will do it for you and for me for now. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday.